I think as people realize that, they come to understand just how important abortion access is generally, but then also medication abortion access in particular, because it improves access to care, because it allows for greater autonomy. That's something that we really need people to understand. Welcome back to Prognosis Ohio. I'm Dan Skinner, and that was Danielle Bissett of the Ohio Policy Evaluation Network, which is doing some really important work on reproductive health and rights here in Ohio. On today's episode, I talk with Danielle and Morgan Mitchell of the Abortion Fund of Ohio, mainly about the state of access to medication abortion in Ohio, but also, as you can imagine, given the times in which we live, we talk about a lot more. When we last did an episode on the topic of abortion just before Roe v. Wade was overturned by the Supreme Court, I talked with Professor Jessie Hill about what she thought a post-Roe Ohio would look like. I encourage you to go back and listen to that conversation, if you can stomach revisiting the time, of course. We'll be linking to that episode in the show notes. We, of course, had a sense of the dangers at that time, but the particulars were still unfolding. While the actual situation since then has, I think it's fair to say, been far more complicated and slow rolling than many had thought, the devastating consequences of the repeal of basic reproductive rights have been real, with the brunt falling on Ohio's most vulnerable, as predicted. The best-known moment of this fallout was probably the horrible story of a 10-year-old Ohioan who sought an abortion in Indiana because Ohio law prohibited her getting one here. The shocking story made national news, as you'd expect, and led to our attorney general speculating publicly that it probably hadn't even happened. Whether Yost was lying or just ill-informed, he was wrong, of course, but that horrifying event has framed the stakes of what Ohio has done in restricting abortion access. Now, we're facing consequential elections in August and in November, in which anti-choice politicians are trying to amend the Ohio Constitution to make it harder for ballot initiatives to pass. At first, supporters tried to deny that this was just about abortion rights, which actually have majority support in Ohio and would clearly remain in place if we had something closer to a democratic system here in Ohio. But just this week, as the Ohio Capital Journal has noted, Secretary of State Frank LaRose finally admitted publicly that it's actually completely about abortion. Buckle up, folks, and get ready to vote. Before turning to my conversation with Danielle and Morgan, please do consider chipping at a few bucks through Patreon to help this show sustain and grow. And consider sharing it with friends, reviewing the show in your app, and do all the things one does to give a podcast a little support. You can find out how to do all of it at prognosisohio.com. Also, just a programming note, this is going to be our last episode for a little while so I can recover from what's clearly some form of intense burnout I'm trying to shake. But I hope to get back into some new episodes in a few months to be refreshed and ready for August or September. Okay, now to my conversation with Morgan Mitchell of the Abortion Fund of Ohio and Danielle Bissett of the Ohio Policy Evaluation Network. So on, on previous episodes we've done on the issue of abortion in Ohio, um, including with Professor Jesse Hill, Representative and Physician Anita Samani, and, and others, it's become clear to me that it's not only hard to keep up with the various restrictions in Ohio, I mean, I follow this stuff pretty closely and I often have to go double check, but there's a great deal of confusion um, among Ohioans as a result of kind of where we are. So, so for example, many people just wrongly think of abortion is simply illegal in Ohio, which it is not. So let's start by making this really clear. And we can talk, turn to Morgan here. What's the current state of abortion access and restrictions in Ohio? 
Yeah. So currently abortion is legal up to 22 weeks. And right now um, we have about roughly six clinics in Ohio and you can um, still get a medication or procedural or surgical abortion depending on the location, but all of those are still options available in Ohio. Mm-hmm. Um, the six-week abortion ban is still blocked. Um, however, the appeal is accepted, so that case is still ongoing. But for right now, there is no six-week abortion ban, and that's also referred to as the heartbeat bill. Right, which has been around for, you know, one of the first things I learned about when I moved to Ohio in 2010 was this thing called the heartbeat bill. So it's we're 13 years down the road. This has been a long-standing goal of anti-abortion groups in Ohio. Right. It actually went into effect because of um, Dobbs. It was ca- it's called a trigger law, where as soon as Dobbs fell, that triggered the law into effect. Right. Um, but luckily, it has been blocked for now. Um, and then also what we're seeing is um, there are trap laws in effect. So right now, there are limitations on doctors who can serve as backup positions for clinics, and that makes it harder for clinics to provide abortions. But luckily, the fetal tissue bill that would have made it so burial and cremation of fetal tissue um, after an, from abor- an abortion uh, has to be cremated or, or buried, um, that's blocked right now as well. Um, and then, right, there's also a ban on telemedicine, being, being able to get uh, medication abortion through a doctor through telemedicine appointments. That is also currently blocked as well. Mm-hmm. And then, unfortunately, what's in effect is the D&E ban, which is the most common second trimester abortion method. And it's used to terminate the pregnancy, but it was blocked by a federal judge in 2019. So that is also in effect. And then um, we also have the Down syndrome laws in effect as well. Doctors are prohibited from performing an abortion if they know that the patient's reason for the abortion relates to a diagnosis or indication of Down syndrome. So that's another barrier. It seems like once the Dobbs decision overturned Roe last year, which was supposedly, though totally implausibly, all about states, not you know, this is what they said, setting their own abortion laws. This is about states' rights, which is actually segregationist language, but we'll bracket that for a moment. Anti-abortion groups turn to attacking medica- medical abortion in the courts with national implications. And I think it's clear to to really state emphatically for listeners, you know, the goal of the um, anti-abortion movement in the United States is to ban abortion full stop. This is not just about deferring to states. But let's turn to the medication abortion piece of this. Uh, no, back to the basics again a little bit here. What is uh, medication abortion and how does it fit into this broader picture? And maybe we can hear from you, Danielle. Thanks, Dan. What we typically mean by medication abortion in the United States is a two-drug regimen. Uh, the first is mifepristone, uh, which is a pill that's typically taken um, in the first 10 weeks of pregnancy. Uh, and then it's followed by misoprostol. Um it is possible to have medication abortion with misoprostol alone, but the two-drug regimen is most effective and also has the fewest side effects. So um, it's definitely the gold standard for medication abortion. And both safe. I mean, the FDA has approved these. I mean, these have been you know with us for decades now. So we have a lot of data points about how this interacts with patients and sort of the the, the, the effects. 
absolutely. You know, the FDA approved mifepristone in uh, to the year 2000. France actually had uh, approved it in the 80s. Mm. Um, so it's been, we've had decades of use. Uh, the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine, um, which again is a sort of gold standard uh, you know, evidence um, assessor for, for medicine, determined that medication abortion uh, has a very low rate of complications and that's very effective. In fact, actually, it, it causes fewer deaths than Viagra, than penicillin, and even Tylenol. Mm-hmm. So it's extremely safe. It's been around for a long time, as we've talked about. So so it strikes me, I mean, I've been involved in conversations and as a researcher writing about, reading about abortion for quite a while now, but we, we haven't heard much about it. It seems like we're hearing a lot about it now. So w- what is it about this current moment that kind of has brought the medication abortion piece to the forefront? Yeah, I think it's interesting because misoprostol was used as medication for ulcers. Um, and it was decades ago that women in Brazil actually noticed that they have in the package, it says, you know, don't take while you're pregnant. And they went, oh, maybe if I'm pregnant, then this will help me self medicates how to do a self-managed abortion. So that became like a use for misoprostol because they were managing their own abortions um, mm-hmm. at home using ulcer medication. Um, and then mifepristone was added because it stops the pregnancy from growing so that it's easier for the misoprostol to then uh, terminate the pregnancy and expel it. D- Danielle, I can see you want to add something to what Morgan just took us through. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think um, Morgan's so right, and I'm so glad she pointed to um, the role of um, women in Brazil um, in, in helping us to understand um, that abortion uh, can be safely achieved through medication. One of the things that I think is also really important to recognize is that medication abortion has always been really overregulated in relation to its safety. In fact, there's a, a lawsuit right now in Washington arguing that uh, mifepristone in particular uh, ought to be um, uh, sort of have some of its restrictions eased. Mm. Um, and so I think that's also really important to add here. We've seen over time, as the FDA has, in fact, eased some of the restrictions from when it was first approved in 2000, people have really used the uh, medication abortion model more and more um, as it's become more accessible. So really, part of the reason why you haven't heard about it until now is because of its overregulation since its approval in 2000. Yeah, you know, we saw during the Trump administration, the FDA under attack, and really, you know, with the Biden administration, recovering and rebuilding its reputation was an important uh, mission. It's so disingenuous for this to be reframed as a safety issue when you look at the FDA's approach to these things. And I, I just think that's the the kind of the height of disingenuousness, because that's not really why they're going after these these um, you know medications. They're going after them because it's another way to to lock things down. Yeah, that's right. At this moment, it's uh, medication abortion uh, is over half of all abortions in the United States, and that's I think one of the reasons why we're hearing about it a lot more. It's become increasingly a target. So Morgan, as we look toward these bans and proposed bans, you know, it's, it seems to me that too many political actors kind of broadly out there talk about this as though it's an abstract issue, which is obviously not, right? Um, these restrictions are right now having real effects on actual people who are, you know, let's be honest, being forced to carry a pregnancy to term, 
Um, just at a time, and you know, it strikes me too. We've talked about this on this show uh, with um, Representative Samani and others. This is all happening at a time where our governor in this state and so many members of the Republican Party, the same ones who are pushing these bills, talk about their just heartfelt commitments to children and, and mothers and, you know, all of this. And it, it doesn't add up. So, you know, they're undercutting that, that message. Uh, what's the actual impact? I mean, how do we get a sense of what this looks like on the ground for real people who are being caught up in all of this? Yeah. So, I mean, obviously marginalized communities are going to be most impacted by barriers to uh, abortion access. Um, but really, the reality is, if mifepristone is no longer, you know, able to be used, then that that impacts every single pregnant person in Ohio, even if they are don't plan on um, accessing an abortion. Because if you have a miscarriage, mifepristone helps with that process as well. And so, really, a lot a lot of people are going to be impacted um, by this mifepristone lawsuit or by the bans that are currently in effect. I mean, saying you care about children, well, how about the children that I work with who are pregnant and they can't get an abortion because they have to, they would be forced to tell their parent or get permission from their parent and they either don't want to or their parent has said no. And then they are forced to carry this child's term or this pregnancy to term. And um, that's how is that caring for children? I mean, the, 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 People, the minors I talk to are terrified when they call the juvenile court to try to get a judicial bypass to, in order to get an abortion without telling their parents. The clerks at almost every single juvenile court in all 88 counties tells them, we don't do that here. We've never heard of it. We don't know what that is. And so they're helpless and scared and no one's helping them navigate it. And how is that caring for children if you're passing laws where they can't access abortions without um, you know, having to tell a parent that could be abusive, that could be, you know, a religious extremist. You you don't know. I mean, how is that caring for children? And how is that caring for mother or maternal health pregnant people if you're getting rid of things that even pregnant people need if they're not accessing an abortion? Um, it's so it's so disingenuous. It's just a, they just want to get rid of people's autonomy. That's really what it is. It's all about getting rid of autonomy. You know, and there's this discussion out there about kind of cross-border movement, you know, well, you know, there, in, in Ohio is actually, I think about Texas, I mean, if you're in Texas, you have to drive, I mean, just extremely far to to get to any any kind of access. Ohio at least has a few neighbors that are a bit wiser than us on these issues. Not that that at all helps the problem, though. I mean, these are still substantial barriers. I just, I want to ask you, because I know early on there was a discussion about can we um, you know, shut down uh, medication abortion by mail? Um, you know, can we even keep people, in a sense, from moving across borders? And even Justice Alito in the Dobbs decision, I, I believe it was Alito, said this probably wouldn't pass constitutional muster. My, my political science understanding of the Commerce Clause means that it suggests that this is not um, something that's possible. But like, is this still the conversation out there, this idea of kind of actually going outside of the state and shutting off the ability to even use, uh, you know, kind of interstate uh, options to expand access, keeping in mind that these are still barriers that will disproportionately affect people and cause harm. Sure. I mean, I, I think it's really important to note that our research at Open has has shown people cross 
borders for care all the time, um, state borders, that is, uh, at a rate of about 8%. Um, more restrictive states tend to send more people out of state. And um, you know, that's uh, something that we certainly see in Ohio, in part because it's already hard to get to a clinic, right? So for many people in Ohio, they already have to travel to Pittsburgh because that's where the closest facility is to them. Right. Morgan um, mentioned that there are six clinics. I mean, Ohio is a big state. So right. it's already, I mean, geographic and geographic disparities are already something that Ohio has in spades. That's correct. And it costs money to travel out of state and you know, travel long distances, even within state. So that can be a barrier to care. It also can be, um, you know, sort of a real disparate impact of seeking care if you are spending your month's rent or your electricity bill uh, in order to not only get your procedure, but pay for gas and, you know, Take or take a plane. Some folks we're talking to in Ohio are flying to Chicago right now, not because they can't get abortion in Ohio, but because the wait times are longer than they'd prefer. So, you know, cross-state travel is already here. It's already happening. It will continue to happen until abortion is available through you know, mainstream medicine, frankly. Yeah, and, and, and I'm glad you mentioned the wait times because there's, there's another paradox, right? You know, anti-abortion folks in the United States talk about third-term abortions. They say, you know, they, they kind of parody the situation and misrepresent it. But the truth is, is that the average person who is seeking an abortion wants an abortion as early in term as possible and does not want to wait, does not want to that time to drag on, but they are actually causing this kind of a backlog. That's right. And, you know, we're seeing that um, in Ohio right now, where we're actually also seeing an influx of patients from states that are even more restrictive, like Kentucky um, and West Virginia, where folks are, are coming to Ohio. So Ohioans are experiencing greater wait times as the clinics seek to serve those folks. Um, I think it's also a good point to, to mention here um, that there are websites, you know, like Plan C, like Women Help Women and other places, Aid Access, for example, online, uh, where people can get medication abortion. And that's something that um, has also revolutionized the way in which people are able to seek care. And so what we're seeing in some of our um, interviews with abortion seekers, for example, is that folks will make a request online and they'll make an appointment and they'll hope that you know, sort of they'll, they'll sort of use whichever comes first, um, basically, um, whether it's the pills in the mail or, um, you know, the, the clinic uh, uh, appointment. So. Mm -hmm. And also, I just want to clarify that there are nine abortion clinics in Ohio, not six. There are six that do procedural abortions, but nine that do uh, medication abortion. Okay, thanks for that clarification. It's important. Okay, so there's a current lawsuit that's you know pending in Texas with this Orwellian named uh, Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine uh, versus the FDA. Um, so, you know, without getting too, too wonky here, because these cases can take us there fast, and I will be linking to some some uh, reporting on it that listeners can check out. Uh, you know, can uh, Danielle, maybe you can give us a snapshot of kind of what the broad aims of this are, you know, and, and kind of where we stand with this process. Sure. And I just want to say, um, this is super confusing. You know, you started this uh, 
podcast episode with the idea of just how confused everyone is. And I just want to say some of this is why um, these lawsuits don't really make any sense. And they are really hard to follow um, with the back and forth. So very briefly, I'll try to just say, in a case of extreme venue shopping, uh, this Texas lawsuit targeted a particular judge um, that they believed and were proven true um, to would would basically um, see the merits of their case. And in in that case, plaintiffs are challenging the FDA's approval of mifepristone. And they're actually claiming that the FDA's approval process and the subsequent sort of loosenings of the restrictions that I mentioned uh, are actually beyond the FDA's authority. And again, this doesn't really have any grounding in fact, and in most venues would, in all the other venues probably would have been dismissed without any uh, legitimacy um, because of the the uh, venue shopping, uh, Judge Kaczmarek decided uh, to rule in favor of those plaintiffs and basically argued that a, a medication abortion was no longer approved by the FDA. And if listeners don't know about Judge Kaczmarek, there's been a lot written about some really shady stuff that even even in the confirmation process and all of that, like removing names from journal articles and not being forthright with the committee and all of that. I mean, really, this person should be impeached, but that's probably for another episode. I think, indeed, I think you could do a whole episode on on all of those issues, which, I mean, again, is actually kind of telling. Kaczmarek's ruling went up to the Fifth uh, uh, Circuit, and what happened at the Fifth Circuit was they kind of decided to split the difference. And they said, well, actually, the FDA approval is okay, but everything after, um, uh, tw- you know, sort of the, the 2016 um, changes, again, that loosened the, the REMS, that's not okay. Again, why that difference? The, 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 the rationale is super hard to follow. What's really important right now, I think, for folks to know is that the Supreme Court weighed in and basically said that no changes can be made to access to mifepristone while this case proceeds. So it's been kicked back down to Kesmeric. There was a hearing yesterday. We're waiting to hear what happens next on that. And it's very serious. We should be paying a lot of attention. But it's also really important to recognize that nothing is going to change um, immediately um, until the Supreme Court weighs in again. So that's kind of the short the short answer. But it, again, this is why people are confused. This is why people are confused about the availability of abortion in Ohio. This is why folks are confused who are providing medication abortion and other kinds of abortion um, clinicians um, in both in Ohio and in other states. Yeah. So as we as we await the kind of federal uh, process and, you know, talk about you know, uh, the kind of shopping you talked about in Texas, finding the judge that you think will do the bidding um, that, you, that you want them to do. While that's taking place here in Ohio, uh, we have just, you know, as Morgan kind of suggested early on with the the kind of overview of the situation, you know, we, we have a, a real interest in going as far as we possibly can with the state legislature and the Republican majority there. Um, there are also some legislative attacks on abortion access and rights uh, and freedom in the state house here. Morgan, can you talk a little bit about what, what some of those developments are? I mean, what like we know a little bit of where we are, but what are what's the wish list of this group that's trying to uh, take away people's rights to an abortion? Yeah, so something we've seen a lot recently is um, religious extremists who are anti-choice come to Ohio cities and ask the cities 
the city councils to pass city ordinances where you can't get an abortion. Even if the state allows you to get an abortion, uh, these cities can say you can't, you can't get, or you can't provide any abortions if you are a provider. Uh, And so Lebanon uh, as a city in Ohio that passed that ordinance and the ACLU and the Abortion Fund of Ohio fought against that because they also had language for aiding and abetting. So if you drove someone to an appointment, you know, or that could even be the pregnant person themselves, like we wanted that language at the very least to be struck out and they, they were forced to remove that language, but they still had that ordinance in place. And it's mostly symbolic because there aren't any clinics in Lebanon. And then the other city that did that, I believe is London, Ohio as well. Um, and there aren't clinics there either. So it's it's mostly symbolic, but it's showing even if the people, you know, vote a certain way in that state to have rights, they can still get rid of them if they want to. And um, it's we're seeing, you know, attacks against telehealth and getting abortions, you know, through a abortion pill through a doctor online, which is much easier than going to clinics. And I have a feeling that they're using that as a means because there's a lot of rural People, rural places in Ohio where folks can't get to clinics, they can't get to um, a hospital or a place that provides a, abortion medication. So telehealth is their only option. And so that's why that's being attacked is they're attacking rural communities. Yeah. And, and, and the, again, the sort of evidence base on this, I mean, the, the, the disproportionate effects on rural Ohio, I mean, rural Ohio gets talked about as like this, you know, place where just, you know, it's all opposed to abortion rights and things like that. But like there's Ohio is a diverse place. And it seems to me like, again, this is where we're not talking enough about the disparities that are baked into these kinds of legislative developments. Yeah. I think something that frustrates me is when people are, Oh, well you voted for that. You're, you, you're in the rural community and you voted for that. And that does acknowledge how gerrymandered, how uh, Ohio is, how much voter suppression there is in Ohio. Like right now, there's going to be a special election August 6th in Ohio because putting abortion, making abortion a constitutional right and protection is going to be on the ballot and they don't want people to turn out to vote because they're going to vote that in. So now they've made it so there's a special election this August just so less voters will turn out and abortion won't be a constitutional right in Ohio. They would. They don't care what voters want or what people in the communities actually want. It's just about it's about suppressing them, tricking them, making it so they can't actually have their voices be heard. Right. Yeah. All this stuff about outside groups and things like this. I mean, these are like well-worn scare tactics. Um, when really the crisis in Ohio is the fact that democracy is uh, being attacked consistently. And when you look at like, just like in most of the country, um, Ohioans by large majorities support basic abortion rights. You know, there's some differences about where the lines should be and things like that, but we don't have a system that can even respond to that kind of public support. So let's come back to the question of impact, because we want to put people at the center, because they often are not at the center of this. We talk about this in the abstract without really attending to the real needs of pregnant people. Uh, if medication abortion were to be banned, um, you know, 
in Ohio, nationally, whatever it looks like, like what would this actually do in terms of how would this change the kind of terrain of what people in need of an abortion um, would have to navigate? Well, it would be profound. Um, as I mentioned earlier, 50% of all abortions that are happening right now are medication abortions. So you can imagine the kind of clinic congestion we've already described just getting that much worse. Procedural abortion takes that much longer um, to provide. Um, you know, It requires people to travel further. So some folks would be disenfranchised and unable to access that care. Um, and then I think another piece that we, we might think about is like, in other settings, we work really hard to make sure that people get the kind of care that they want. We believe that patient autonomy is a value to uphold. And here, you know, what would happen is that folks who have really good reasons uh, for preferring medication abortion to procedural abortion, um, again, perhaps because it's hard for them to travel or other kinds of logistical challenges. 60% of people who have abortions are already parents. And so maybe it's hard to get away from, you know, from, from childcare. And it's also true that for some folks, um, you know, a legacy of distrust of the mainstream medical establishment means that being able to receive their care with a minimum of, you know, sort of in-person interactions with clinicians um, in the comfort of their own home, like that's actually really important to them. And and again, in other settings, we honor that and and we strive to to meet those kinds of preferences. And we're we would see that totally stripped away here yeah. um, as well. So profound on the level of what would happen as far as numbers, but also profound on on the kind of experiences we would be offering to our fellow Ohioans. You know, you use the language of um, you know patient autonomy, patient centeredness. Again, I'm a medical educator, so these are all things that the medical community claims to really value. And I, and I believe that they do really value it. These are the things, these are the, the values we teach in medical school. What has been the response from the medical community to the, to this in, in, in your experience? And I note, by the way, it just drives me absolutely crazy. Mike Gonadakis, the head of Ohio Right to Life, the pr most prominent anti-abortion group in Ohio is a member of the Ohio Medical Board. And if you go on the Ohio Medical Board's website, they don't even mention it. He's just like a business guy or something like this. He was appointed mm. by governor. He was just reappointed by Governor DeWine. So like, how do we understand the climate of medicine, the climate of healthcare against this, especially when you have shady things like this or lack of transparency, like the Gonadakis thing? Danielle? Well, we see that all of the major medical associations have come out against these kinds of restrictions, um, especially the Mifepristone uh, restriction. I think there's just a real sense um, at the top levels that this is a, a, a incredible overreach um, into what is usually, um, you know, sort of a, a, you know a, a, a reliable uh, procedural. Uh, regimen for approving drugs by the FDA and then, you know, sort of uh, decisions and discretion that clinicians have about how to provide care. So there's that level um, of response that we see across um, the medical establishment. I will also say that there's, um, it's also true that medication abortion, because of some of the early restrictions that were placed on it, um, is not something that many physicians may have personal experience with because um, there were rules about how you could provide it and you had to be on a special registry. And so there was a lot of buck passing, frankly, um, from mainstream medicine to the abortion facilities. And so I think it's 
some of the, at the at the experiential level for many clinicians, they're just now starting to wrap their head around well, what would this mean, really? Um, you know, now it is medication abortion, but what well, can they ro- roll back the approval then of any other drug? Um, you know, certainly we talk a lot about trans health um, and the ways in which um, there's you know sort of parallel threats going on right now um, to uh, gender affirming care. Uh, but you know, again. With this lack of rhyme or reason, you know, it, it really just seems like kind of arbitrary. Whatever they want to pick um, that they're against this week could be, you know, targeted, and that's I think really scary for a lot of clinicians. And and they're I think they're really just coming to realize what a profound effect that could have. Yeah, I mean, policy at its best, and I'm a policy professor, <laughs> should be about easing processes, helping people, right? And and all I'm hearing here from this legislation is barriers and increased burdens. In closing, I I guess I just want to ask both of you to briefly respond to something that I I wonder about oftentimes. This is a little bit more of a kind of more abstract question because I think that there's so many there there's so many fronts we're fighting on like we're right in the middle of this responding all the time you know trans rights higher education uh it's by the way it's not even clear we can, what we can teach in medical school under these things D- diversity and inclusion right at a time where we're supposedly concerned about health disparities things like this but i just kind of want to know what you think of the people who are leading the effort with regard to these restrictions, whether it's medication abortion or whether it's procedural or surgical abortion. On the one hand, you know, I, I kind of, I know these people feel strongly that they, they oppose abortion rights and there's that whole conversation, but we know what the effects are of these. We know that there is increased disparities. We know there's death. We know that there's injury to people. If, if you were to take your best guess at the people who are leading the way with kind of the anti-abortion movement in Ohio, do you think these folks know what the world looks like that they are creating? Do you think that they're unaware? Do they not care? How much have they thought this through fully when we start to look at what Ohio would look like under some of these legislative developments? Danielle, you want to start? You know, I, I can't pretend to read our legislators' minds. Um, I will say that we we really need to urge them, uh, all of our lawmakers, to draw on empathy for people who are seeking care. And really the vast amount of scientific evidence that exists, um, including, for example, you know, some of the projections uh, that have come out about maternal mortality, for example, in the face of uh, you know Dobbs and and uh, the kinds of um, bans that that can unleash, and the ways in which, of course, maternal mortality is also um, extremely disparate, right? Um, with with black people having higher rates of maternal mortality, greater rates of infant death, um, and so these kinds of really important reproductive health outcomes are, are are something that our lawmakers really need to pay attention to. I think sometimes also the general public doesn't really understand and and for good reason I mean I think there there are lots of reasons cultural reasons for this but they really don't understand that in fact actually having a medication abortion is safer than carrying a pregnancy to term I think as people realize that they come to understand just how important abortion access is generally but then also medication abortion access in particular because it improves access to care because it allows for greater autonomy um, 
those that's something that we really need people to understand um, is is this relative safety. It, once you're pregnant with an unwanted pregnancy, it has to end somehow. And abortion is in the first trimester is actually the safest way for that to end. Yeah, and Danielle, you're doing this work with the Ohio Policy Evaluation Network, and I want to I, I want to mention to listeners we're going to be providing a lot of links in, in the show notes and out on social media. But with the Abortion Fund of Ohio, Morgan, I mean, so how how do you think about this question? And again, keeping in mind what Danielle said, which is uh, we we don't know, but we yeah, I think it's important for us to talk about this because the intentions and the wisdom of our legislators should be important to us. Right. Well, it's it's very clear that the legislators don't ever uh, converse or get um, advice or any or any any consultation from the medical professionals um, like the 20 like the fact that abortion is uh, accessible up to 22 weeks that's not even what the law says but because they they didn't count gestational periods correctly because they they're not medical professionals. So they say it's a 20 week, but it's actually 22 weeks because um, you're actually counting from the first day of your last menstrual period, not since conception, but they believe it's from conception. And so seeing how they don't care, it's a medical procedure. They don't care to even talk to doctors or medical professionals or clinicians. They clearly don't talk to people who have had abortions or who pregnant people who are seeking abortions. It's very much just a method of control. And they are either aware of the burdens and the type of society without with total control and no autonomy they're creating. And they know it won't apply to them because they're rich and because they are the ones in control. Um, and so that is something that we have to keep in mind is they're not making these restrictions and going, oh, and I'm going to follow them too. Don't worry. We don't see that. We don't, we've seen lots of anti-abortion politicians whose partners or themselves have had abortions. And there's a, a book of short stories called My Abortion is the Only Moral Abortion. And the stories in there of the people who would pick it outside the clinic, then walk inside and get an abortion there. I mean, it's, it's total hypocrisy. Uh, so that's a glimpse into their mind. <laughs> well, you know, uh, hypocrisy is uh, pretty baked into what we see at the state house these days. And I, I just want to thank you for the work you do with the Abortion Fund of Ohio, uh, Danielle, you and your colleagues with the Ohio Policy Evaluation Network. And keep us up to date. And thanks for taking the time to chat. Yeah, thanks, thanks. for having us. Yeah, thanks for centering this issue. It's really uh, appreciated. My many thanks to Danielle Bissett of the Ohio Policy Evaluation Network and Morgan Mitchell of the Abortion Fund of Ohio for taking some time to talk with us. This episode was produced by me, Dan Skinner. I received editorial and production support from Angela Lynn. Prognosis Ohio is a member of the WCBE Podcast Experience and the Health Podcast Network. As always, be in touch if you have ideas for guests and topics or ways we can improve the show. As I noted, it's going to be a few months before we have a new episode. In the meantime, I want to wish you well and thanks for listening.